This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, well, the temperature is taking a turn for the better, so to speak, um, rising a little bit. So that's nice to see. Um, be careful out there, though. The roads are still quite wet in many areas. And of course, where you've had that mix of um, snow and freezing rain and rain, uh, roads may still be slippery. So please be careful. Well, you may recall back in July that we had Dr. Jane Green, sorry, Professor Emeritus at Memorial University's Faculty of Medicine on our show. She's a genetic researcher who helped to discover a cluster of some 650 people in Newfoundland and Labrador who were diagnosed with a rare and unique eye disease. She also helped our next guest solve a medical mystery surrounding his sight loss. James Mercer is legally blind. He's a longtime member of the CNIB and has been diagnosed with the Newfoundland version of retinitis pigmentosa. He's written a book, I Cite the Power of Perception, uh, and it's all about his experience. He joins me now. Hello. Hi. So, James, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Um, I'm originally born in Upper Island Cove, Conception Bay, uh, and I moved to Bishop's Cove around three years old, and I'm currently living in Townville. So were you blind from birth or was your sight loss gradual over time? Gradual over time. Um, I was born with an hereditary eye disease. And so when did you start noticing that, um, you know, your eyesight probably wasn't as good as it should be? Uh, Sometime between the ages of four and six, uh, I noticed uh, I was uh, I couldn't see at night. Um, my uh, my friends and I were out playing uh, on a hockey rink, kind of a makeshift hockey rink, yeah. And uh, on our way home, it was uh, kind of duckish in the evening, and and uh, I dropped my friends off, walked to their houses, and I had uh, very short ways to go myself. And uh, I found I couldn't see where I was going. And uh, as it happens, uh, my grandmother's house was fairly close to my place, and I got as far as that. And uh, then uh, I screamed and bawled for someone to come help me get home. <laughs> and my aunt Marguerite uh, came outside and uh, took me home. And that was the first time I felt uh, or I knew that I was night blind but uh, also I felt that it was normal for everybody to be night blind at, at that young age. So you thought at first it was a bit normal but it had to be frightening for your family it had to be frightening for you as a young child. Extremely frightening uh, from that point on uh, uh, my mom and, and dad uh, uh, took notice of me in the dark and, and uh, noted that I couldn't see in the dark. Uh, so they took a special uh, a care to keep me inside at night. <laughs> um, so that, I mean, as a child, um, you know, sometimes, especially back then, you, you could roam around a little bit. Uh, what, did you find that confining or were you okay with it because you couldn't see? Uh, I 
I was good at daytime. My daytime vision was really good. Uh, so come uh, evening, uh, around dusk, uh, I started to lose my sight. And then as darkness came, I, I lost my sight. So I, uh, I, they kept me inside. I wasn't able to go outside. I was inside uh, under the comfort, I guess, of home and the protection of my mom and dad. Now, uh, also, uh, I must say that uh, I wasn't the only one in the family with this uh, uh, problem. And I want to explore that a little bit more um, as we go into our conversation. But um, did did it progress then? Did it get worse over time? It slowly got worse. Uh, uh, I don't know if it got worse at night because I had no way of measuring um, uh, how my blindness got worse at night. But during the daytime, uh, uh, daylight glare from sunlight and, and uh, 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 being in school and the glare shining through the windows uh, on the chalkboard and, and uh, the lighted area from the bank of windows in the schoolroom, uh, it became difficult to see uh, uh, clearly. And, and my vision would... Uh, uh, deteriorate to a point that I could hardly see at all. And how old were you by that stage? Uh, it gradually got worse and worse. So, uh, uh, and it was uh, by the time I reached high school uh, and graduated from high school, uh, it was uh, tremendously worse. I couldn't even read uh, a book uh, uh, because the white paper, the black lettering on white paper, uh, was blinding me. The, the white paper would be blinding, and I couldn't. Con- I could only read for a short period of time, five to ten minutes. And of course, it it got worse when uh, I went to university, and uh, I had to do a lot of studying on my own. And, and of course, it got uh, tremendously worse then. And, and I found out I couldn't study what was required to do a university program. So instead of darkness, uh, you were ha- it was too bright. Uh, it, darkness was a major uh, darkness itself uh, was a major problem because it restricted me from doing things at night or in the dark. Uh, daylight was slowly becoming a problem uh, and gradually getting worse over time and restricting me in doing uh, uh, other things as well. And I want to ask you, you know, what that was like uh, growing up in Newfoundland and Labrador at the time uh, and uh, as a a child in uh, Bishop's Cove in Conception Bay North. Uh, When we come back after the break, I also want to ask you a little bit about uh, family history. Um, Our guest today is James Mercer. He's written a book about his uh, rare form of retinitis pigmentosa. He's in Clarenville area. We'll be back right after this. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And we're back. My guest today is James Mercer, a longtime member of the CNIB. He's written a book about his experience and about his diagnosis with a rare eye disease identified here and specific to Newfoundland. And uh, James, I was going to ask you, you're talking a little bit about when you started noticing that something was amiss. Uh, what was it like growing up in the in the 50s, 60s and early 70s as someone with sight loss? Uh, it was quite a struggle, basically. Uh, I tried to maintain myself as 
uh, an equal person to everybody else. But I hid my uh, uh, impairment as such in that I uh, only had a few chosen friends who uh, I really trusted to know that I had a sight impairment. So uh, accommodating and, and adapting to different things during daylight hours, where I spent most of my time, uh, was uh, what I did uh, to uh, uh, basically uh, help uh, myself along and, and uh, be in the same circles as everybody else. Like some the, of the things, I'm sorry. Sorry, you know, you go ahead. Well, uh, some of the things I did, like uh, it was a gravel road and um, uh, at home and, and um, walking, if I had to walk at night time, in some cases, not being able to see, I, I had complete uh, recognition of where the house was through memory. And I, I see light, uh, beams of light shining through windows and I know exactly where those places were and how close I was to home. And of course, the gravel road where the tires from cars dispelled the crushed stone off to the side and in the center, it walked in the smooth part of the road. But if you had to step off because there was a vehicle coming along, you stepped off into the oil gravel on the side of the road. But, or, or if you strayed from the side, uh, from the uh, smooth part of your tire track, uh, you'd be in crushed stone and you know you were going off the road. So uh, that was one way I got myself through uh, nighttime walking. Uh, there are many other things I did to adapt uh, to try to be an equal to everybody else. So you, you say you kept it hidden. I was going to ask you what kind of resources were available to you as a young person in school at the time, but I presume you were keeping it hidden from your teachers as well. Exactly. I kept it hidden from my teachers. There were no resources at that time, are no known resources because I lived in a, sm a small uh, rural community. Unlike um, being in a, a, a larger town, uh, our city, such as St. John's, where uh, I guess there were supports available in one form or another, but out in the rural community was nothing. And even at uh, when I got to a university level, uh, I went seeking help uh, with my studies, and 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 there was wasn't even uh, told to me. Uh, CNIB is there to help you get a, get a reader and help you with your studies and things like that. That wasn't even told to me. So, uh, and I wasn't aware of it. Uh, I guess being ignorant of. Uh, what was available was part of the problem as well as my uh, hiding the fact that I had a... Because I wanted to be equal. I didn't want people to know I, I was different. I didn't want people to know that I uh, I was not, um, how would you say, uh, fully functional. Looking back, uh, do you think that people were aware, particularly, you know, teachers or or others? No. None of them were aware. I uh, uh, going going to school. I uh, if I had problems seeing the chalkboard, if the, if I was in the back of the room, or if I was over close to a bank of windows where the light came in, the glare came in, I'd ask to be moved and uh, uh, asked to be put up front. And uh, if uh, if they accommodated me, well, 
I'd be glad because I, I'd, I'd be able to see the, the board that much easier and I'd be able to do that much work. And I would be able to pay more attention to the teacher uh, without having the stress of uh, uh, glare and blindness. Uh. So that's a lot of uh, stress to carry around because you knew you knew your, your limitations, if you will. You were trying to navigate uh, as if there were no limitations, but you were aware of those limitations and you found those adaptations, as you said. But were there many employment opportunities for someone who was visually impaired at the time? You went to university. No doubt you were thinking about, you know, your your uh, prospects after school. Um, were there many opportunities for someone who was visually impaired? How did you cope with that? That, uh, that in itself is, is not a story I could write a book on, but uh, I accepted the fact and I went. Uh, I accepted the fact that I had a, 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 a disability. We we'll call it right now. I accepted the fact that that was that was that was there, and that during work, if finding it, the part of finding employment was difficult. But once I found employment, uh, I think my uh, disability was a problem. But uh, I managed to uh, get through it and, uh, and work along with everybody else. But it also meant that I had to take on jobs that were of, uh, uh, not as significant in, in the way of pay and that. So I wouldn't be getting up my friends while my friends were going out becoming teachers, lawyers, doctors and whatever. I, I, I was just a, a lowly uh, clerk at a store or something that you're getting uh, a minimum wage or something there above. And so um, you eventually you found your way to the CNIB. What was that like for you? Ah, eye-opening, uh, pardon the pun, <laughs> to find that there was some support out there uh, that could help me through different things. And uh, so I got registered with the CNIV and uh, took a veil and I availed of some of the supports they had. But I also found there was discrimination within the CNIV itself. And that, uh, that's in my book. Uh, I pointed that out. And it's better, I guess it's better uh, spelled out in the book as to what that type of discrimination was. Is that in terms of uh, visually impaired versus blind? It's times of, uh, uh, no, not visually impaired versus blind. It's times of uh, non-visually impaired versus visually impaired. Interesting. So, so you... Anyone who was, anyone who was, uh, uh, I, I can name several, but I, I, I you know, that... Uh, uh, who worked at the CNIB and other places that looked down upon you and, and because you were visually impaired. And that discrimination then, uh, I mean, I addressed it. And, of course, I fell away from the CNIB and their supports because of that fact. But a lot of the other people who were registered with the CNIB uh, let it fall off their shoulders, I guess, and, and uh, moved on with their life. Uh, accepting the discrimination, but being the person who I am, I wouldn't accept such a thing. That's too bad. And we're talking about a very long time ago now. Uh, it was the late 70s, is that correct? About 40 odd years ago? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, that's too bad that you encountered that at that time. Uh, but you've obviously made a success of things. And I want to ask you a little bit about um, support within your family and your community. And as you said, you weren't the only person in your family affected. I want to get into all of that now when we come back after the break. Our guest today uh, on On Target is James Mercer. He's written a book about his rare form of retinitis pigmentosa. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And we're back. Our guest today on On Target is James Mercer. Uh, He's uh, uh, written a book about his uh, rare form of retinitis pigmentosa. And James, there was a hint uh, when you were very young that something was amiss. You say you're not the only person in your family affected. Um, What did your family know about uh, blindness and, and sight loss? How were they affected? My family didn't know anything about blindness and sight loss as such. They knew about blindness. People were blind and and couldn't see the way around. But legally or uh, visually impaired, they knew very little or nothing of of it. Uh, I have two whole siblings, uh, a sister and a brother, who are completely uh, normal as per se, as the way normal would be. Uh, But I have a brother and a sister younger than myself, who has the same disease I have. Uh, My sister is far more advanced, even though she's younger, and uh, my younger brother is not not as advanced as as myself or my sister. And... uh, Were you aware of older relatives, uh, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents who were similarly affected, aunts, uncles? It seemed to skip the generation, uh... During research writing the book, I found that there was blindness, uh, as what they call blindness, or very poor sight in in some of my uh, relatives, uh, going back uh, over generations. And, uh, of course, uh, then I find uh, I'm related to other people, and there were some similar things going on with them as well. So... uh, uh, Knowing knowing this about uh, blindness being in the family, very little known, but again, very little talked about. I mean, it was kind of, I guess, kind of taboo to talk about it. And I would imagine, it, uh, similar to your circumstance, uh, other people were similarly trying to hide the fact that they were impaired in any way. I, I I would assume so. My my I guess the reason I tried to hide the fact is because not only wanted to be a equal, but I didn't want to be a de, uh, dependent on other people. I didn't want other people to uh, have, have to uh, look after me as such. So how did Dr. Jane Green come into the picture? Because I understand that you had been trying for a long time to figure out exactly what was going on. Uh, I saw, uh, uh, I regularly tried to uh, get my eyes done uh, after university, uh, try to get glasses and whatever to see better, and nothing seemed to work. Uh, you know, there was no kind of glass that uh, I could get uh, to uh, help me along with what I needed them for. And I went to see, uh, I was... Uh, sent to see uh, a doctor at the eye clinic in health science. It was a Dr. Johnson. 
And he examined me, and uh, he said, it looks like RP, retinitis pigmentosa, he explained. But he was unsure. He said, it's different. So he said, I, I, I need help with this. And he contacted uh, Jane Green, Dr. Green, uh, who uh, came uh, to his office on my next visit. And uh, she looked into my eyes as well and said, yeah, there's something different here. And... Uh, so she took it from there, and uh, Jane uh, visited me several times at my home. Uh, and, of course, while I, every visit I went to see Dr. Johnson. And uh, she uh, did blood work and did the family tree and, and uh, all the things necessary that in the work, the line of work she was doing. And uh, after... 25 years from 1978 is when I started uh, first saw Jane Green uh, up until uh, uh, 2003 uh, it was always taught to be RP retinitis pigmentosa but uh, uh, they had discovered uh, the mutation uh, within the gene that had caused the problem and it was the RLBP1 gene and uh, they named it, it was different. They named it Newf because it was uh, associated with Newfoundland only. They gave it the name of Newfoundland and Labrador broad cone dystrophy syndrome. So were you surprised to hear that it was so unique, so specific uh, to your family, to, to this place? Yes, I was, I was surprised to see that it was as such. Uh, Growing up, uh, uh, it wasn't. It was just thought of as being night blind, and nothing else. And uh, when I got a certain age, then I understood there was always different forms of eye problems. And then I found later in life that there was a disease known as retinitis pigmentosa. And of course, uh, Dr. Johnson confirmed that with me uh, that. It it could possibly be that. So uh, to answer that question, yes, uh, uh, it was difficult to uh, to grow up with such a thing and to uh, understand what it was all about and to accept it as, was difficult as well. But it was a big realization to know that it was unique to her earlier. And uh, I know of... Uh, 35 to 40 different individuals in my local area that have it. Wow. So they've traced this all back, I suppose, to to one family. Is that correct? Hundreds of years. They went back hundreds of years. Um, I don't know if it's one family, but uh, there's uh, people from, uh, well, it could be people all over Newfoundland with it now because people have moved out of that area. Uh, but uh, back 100 years ago, the people didn't move very far. So it, it, it ranged from uh, Port of Grave to uh, Upper Uncles, small area. Indeed, and and if anybody's been in uh, in uh, Upper Island Cove or Bishop's Cove, looking across, there's there's Port de Grave right there. <laughs> 
just just across the water um and of course that whole area of course settled very very early in uh in the days of the uh, migratory fishery yes yes so so i guess uh very hard to get to those very early people because not a lot of records were kept at the time well i'm told by jane green that there was a lot of inbreeding and and uh, that's what caused caused the, the, the mutation because there was only so many families to choose from. <laughs> um, so um, was it a relief to know that you weren't alone, in other words, that you had this and uh, so many other people were sharing it and you were all pretty unique? Yes, it was a relief to know that I wasn't alone. But I also knew that uh, uh, the people I went to high school with had the disease, but I didn't know on possible. 2003, or many had it, that the people that had it went to high school, and I didn't know they had it, and they never ever mentioned that they had it, and their friends never ever told me. So I'm assuming they kept it to themselves as well. So your experience is not, I mean, you're not in isolation. That had to be very freeing, knowing that you had struggled to that degree as a young person, um, virtually alone, and now knowing that other people were doing exactly the same. Exactly, yeah. As 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 I thought it was, uh, uh, like I know th- those people now are related to me. I know that for a fact. I didn't know that before that we were related, but those people are related. But I also didn't know only their families. You know, when when I did find out, I asked several of their families. Okay. Who's got the disease in your family? Oh, this one and this one and and that one and and. Um, well, we don't we don't put it out there. Uh, we don't be transparent with it, like it's kind of a family thing, and that's the way it was told to me. Have you gotten to know new people through the diagnosis? I got to know of them, and uh, I spoke with several of them. Yes, yeah. And what was it lo- well, like working with Doctor Green? Oh, fantastic! Uh, she's a well respected and uh, and uh, know our work and uh, a great personality easy to work with uh, very informative very transparent very upfront with anything that's going on and always keeps me informed and amazing that she's still doing this work oh yeah it's amazing that she's still doing this work as a matter of fact i, I just finished uh, in 2018 finished uh, uh, a clinical trial uh, for an historical workup for uh, a genetic research to uh, for a gene implantation into the eye. Uh, and uh, that was phase one and phase two was supposed to start uh, uh, right after, but it's it's delayed. Uh, I don't for what reason I don't know. Uh, it happened in Sweden and it happened in Newfoundland, the first phase one. Phase two continued on in Sweden. It's not finished yet, but I'm sure it'll soon wind down. And I don't know the results of phase two, phase two being the medical injection part of the gene, I guess. Uh, so uh, now, having said that, uh, I must be there must be some relationship with those people in Sweden between myself, my my family and the pool of people there to the people in Sweden because it's the same gene that's being treated or being looked at to be treated. 
Isn't that interesting? The same gene. So there must be some Swedish connection. Some Someone got off a boat somewhere and... <laughs> we don't know that. They could have swam the English Channel. <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinary what you can learn. So how did the clinical trial go? You don't know yet. You don't know the results of that. I don't know the results of what, what happened in Sweden. I don't know there was improvement or uh, it's, it hasn't come out officially, but uh, to the grapevine, there was improvement. But I don't think it was the type of improvement or the, uh, the amount of improvement they were looking for. So, And it all depend, it all hinged on the, the delivery of, of the LT gene into the eye because uh, it has to target a specific area and delivery has to be pinpoint perfect to get it there to work so uh, I think they were looking at a different way of uh, uh, transporting the gene into the eye where where it would be more effective than what uh, the the way they got to do it now. Fascinating. Um, I want to talk to you, uh, James, because this is the, um, I guess, the the reason for our discussion today. I want to talk to you a little bit about your book when we come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is James Mercer, um, who was diagnosed with a very rare form. In fact, uh, it's unique to Newfoundland and Labrador, the Newfoundland and Labrador rod cone dystrophy syndrome, which affects eyesight and is genetically linked. We'll be back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. We're back. Our guest today on On Target is James Mercer, who is uh, one of a number of people uh, recently diagnosed with a uh, rare form of uh, sight loss that's uh, rather unique to Newfoundland and Labrador. And you've written a book, James, Eyesight, The Power of Perception. What prompted you to write a book? Uh, I wrote the book basically for three reasons. Uh, first, the first reason I guess was uh, to, um, um, and for, uh, first and foremost, was to I wanted to, uh, to heighten people's perception of struggles, adaptation, and accommodations of uh, people who have a permanent life-altering impairment. In that case, uh, uh, I was a visually, I was visually impaired myself, so I, I recognised that people with other impairments existed, and I wanted to heighten the, the awareness of the general public that we we exist as well. And the second reason I wrote the book was because I had two near fatal uh, health issues, which uh, heightened my own vulnerability and, and mortality. And I, I then I um, wanted to to write the book. It became more uh, more important uh, for me to get it out as soon as possible. And basically, the third reason was society in general needs to be more open and transparent in accepting the inclusion of people with uh, life-altering impairments. So I understand there's some significance in this title, eyesight, in this eye, the singular eye, uh, sight, the power of perception. Why that title? Okay. uh, Eyesight, uh, basically, uh, eyesight means uh, to see, the ability to see, by a person, either through uh, uh, physical or intellectual uh, sight, and 
perception uh, means the ability to see, hear, uh, 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 something through the through your senses. So uh, I put that out there. And if you read the book, uh, or if anyone reads the book, they will understand what eyesight, the power of perception, means. After reading the book, uh, I would say the power of perception would be their own, <laughs> because they they would understand what what I mean or what I'm trying to put out there. What was the writing process like? Have you written before? I got a one novel published. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Loyal, E-L-I-O-L. The E is silent. And that's something else, too, that put, uh, put me back to Sweden. Uh, uh, the name Loyal, or E-Loyal, uh, the E is silent, uh, is an old name from uh, the Norse people. And uh, my sister, her name is Greta, uh, Greta, so that uh, takes me back to Sweden uh, or the Norse people. So uh, I'm thinking, okay, that's the name, and those names are prominent right down through my family's history, even today in in uh, the family that exists today. Those names are names. I'm sorry, are all over the place. So there's hints everywhere. The hints everywhere that were related to people who back here. So. Uh, uh, and what was name. writing all yeah, this? Quiet. What was writing all this down like for you? Was it a difficult process? Uh, timely? It was a difficult process. Uh, through through writing the first book, Loyal, I done a lot of research, and uh, through the research, I found out a lot of things about uh, blindness in the family. So then when I, it became a little bit easier when I started writing eyesight, the power of perception, because I had a, a general idea of what was going on, and I knew exactly where to look and, and uh, where to go for the information. And where is the book available? Because no doubt people have been listening to you, fascinated by what you've had to say. Where can they get it? The book is currently uh, in print by Dorn's. Dorn's uh, uh, Printing, publishing out of uh, the United States, uh, Pittsburgh, United States. It should be available sometime between now and Christmas. I'm expecting uh, the publisher, my copy, uh, within the next two weeks. Uh, That's paperback. Uh, uh, It'll come out in digital form for all digital devices. Um, I think it's 78,000 venues, uh, like Apple, Amazon, uh, who put it out digitally. So it'll come out digitally, uh, I think, after Christmas, uh, into the new year. But paperback should be out uh, before Christmas. And are you expecting to have it on store shelves, or will it be available through you? I'm expecting to have it on store shelves. It will be available from me if it's not on store shelves. I will have uh, copies here. Uh, for anyone who want want to purchase one. James, do keep us up to date on uh, when the book is available, because no doubt we'll be getting calls about it. I really appreciate your time this afternoon for sharing your story with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Uh
Oh, and he, we lost him. Um, that was James Mercer. He is uh, an author and um, was uh, diagnosed with a very rare form of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador rod cone dystrophy syndrome affecting his eyesight. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone.